Come on, you sons of bitches. Do you want to live forever? A United States Marine Corps non-commissioned officer. Attributed to Marine First Sergeant Daniel Daly, Balo Wood, June 6th, 1918. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 46, Balo Wood, Warriors into the Woods. The 6th of June, 1918, dawned with the guns pounding away to the north. The U.S. Army General in charge of the 4th Marine Brigade, it was the best man on hand for the job in those early days, was one Brigadier General James Harbord and he provided only a five-minute artillery barrage of Hill 142 before the first of the 5th Marines stepped out into 300 meters of open wheat fields. There would be no creeping or rolling barrage to further soften the way for them. The hard work would all have to be done by near-suicidal bravery and firepower, which was what the American leadership believed in. They advanced in perfect waves in a throwback to the summer of 1914. Those Marines of the 1st Battalion, 5th Regiment, both grizzled and salty NCO and doe-eyed young leathernecks, were instantly hit with heavy machine gun fire. They made perfect targets, and the lack of artillery preparation made itself promptly felt. Marines dropped in complete ranks as the machine gun's hammering rain of angry bullets punched into them and spun them around or knocked them down. The 1-5 Marines lost 13 officers and 325 men just getting to Hill 142, figures that represented 90% of the officers and 50% of the enlisted men. By superhuman determination and reckless bravery, some Marines survived the assault and seized the hill from the German enemy. But it wasn't enough. Later that night, a German counterattack would lead to a brutal fight that would see the American survivors on the hill destroyed and the ruined hill retaken and put under German boots again. To the southeast of Hill 142, the Marines of the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, and 3rd Battalion, 6th Marines, prepared themselves for their task. 3-5 Marines would attack from the western end and the 3-6 Marines would strike into the wood from the south end. The intelligence they had received was that the Germans held only a small part of Balo Wood. That intelligence was wrong. Marine Colonel Albertus Kaplan, commander of the 6th Marine Regiment, wrote in his memoir, With the Help of God and a Few Marines, years after the battle, that I can still see before me the dark threat of Balo Wood as full of menace as a tiger's foot, dangerous as a live wire, poisonous with gas, bristling with machine guns, alive with snipers, scornfully beckoning us to come on and be slain, waiting for us like a dragon in its den. Zero hour came. It was time to begin the assault. There was no artillery barrage to soften up Balo Wood, so like their brothers to their immediate north, the 3-5 Marines would be crossing another open wheat field as they approached from the west. Floyd Gibbons, 
a swashbuckling war correspondent from the Chicago Tribune, was with the Marines when they began their attack. Quote, Five minutes before five o'clock, the order for the advance reached our pit. It was brought there by a second lieutenant, a platoon commander. We hurriedly finished the contents of the can of cold corned willy which one of the machine gunners and I were eating. The machine guns were taken down and the barrels, cradles, and tripods were handed over to the members of the crew whose duties it was to carry them. And then we went over. There were really no heroics about it. There was no bugle call, no sword waving, no theatricalism. It's just plain get up and go over. And it is done just the same as one would walk across a peaceful wheat field out in Iowa. But with the appearance of our first line, as it stepped from the shelter of the woods into the open exposure of the flat field, the woods opposite began to crackle and rattle with the enemy machine gun fire. Our men advanced in open order, 10 and 12 feet between men. Sometimes a squad would run forward 50 feet and drop. And as its members flattened on the ground for safety, another squad would rise from the ground and make another rush. With no artillery barrage to have thinned out the German ranks in the wood, the assaulting Marines were hit with a wall of machine gun and rifle fire. To the Germans, no enemy had presented targets so easily since the early months of the war. As soon as we came out of this first band of woods in my platoon, there were approximately 52 men. There were only six people got across the first 75 yards, recounted Marine Sergeant Merwin Silverthorne. All the rest were killed, wounded, and pinned down. I mean, we were down into a ravine, which was perfectly enfiladed, and just bloop, a few machine guns, and that was it. So the lieutenant and I stopped halfway across this ravine behind some cordwood to get our bearings, and then moved on and then got up beyond this, which is still under a 100 yards. The lieutenant looked around and said, the hell is my platoon? Well, his platoon was mostly killed and wounded. There were six of us. He said, I'm going on back. Well, he told me to stick with him. And I thought, here's where you and I part company. Because we just got across this place, and that's the last thing I'm going to do. Go back. Nobody ever got in trouble for going toward the enemy. Those Marines not scythed down as they attempted to cross the wheat field went to ground. And as we saw from Gibbon's account, cover and move tactics immediately replaced the open wave formation that was getting them all killed. The air buzzed with the sound of bullets whizzing by, backed up by the tucka 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 noise of the German machine guns. Cocky-clad Marines were falling everywhere. Those that survived continued to push forward towards the wood, even as bullets churned the ground all around them. It was here that Brigadier General Catlin noted that a sergeant, likely Dan Daly, yelled the famous quote that opened our episode. Lieutenant John Thomason was one of the few men who made it into Bela Wood itself. There was yelling and swearing in the wheat, and the lines, much thinned, got into the woods, he recalled. Some grenades went off, there was screaming and a tumult, and the tucka-tucka, tucka-tucka of the Maxim guns died down. Then the men who mounted the slope found themselves in a cleared area full of orderly French woodpiles, and apparently there was a machine gun to every woodpile. 
Sergeant Jerry Finnegan died here, sprawled across one of them. Lieutenant Summers died here. One lieutenant found himself behind a woodpile with a big auto rifleman, just across from them, very near, a machine gun behind another pile, searching for them. The lieutenant, all his world narrowed to that little place, peered vainly for a loophole. The sticks were jumping and shaking as the maxim flailed them. Bullets rang under his helmet. Here, Morgan, he said. I'll poke my tin hat around this side, and you watch and see if you can get the shell shot on them. He stuck the helmet on his bayonet and thrust it out. Something struck it violently from the point, and the rifle made his fingers tingle. The shell shot went off once. In the same breath, there was an odd noise above him. The machine gun. He looked up. Morgan's body was slumping down to its knees. It leaned forward against the wood. The shell shot still grasped in a clasped hand, coming to the ground butt first. The man's head was gone from the eyes up. His helmet slid stickily over, over his combat pack and lay on the ground. My mother, reflected the LT, will never find my grave in this place. He picked up the shell shot, examined it professionally, noting a spatter of little thick red drops on the breech, and the fact that the clip showed one round expended. The charging handle was back. He got to his feet with deliberation, laid the gun across the woodpile and sighted. Three Bosch with very red faces. Their eyes looked pale under their deep helmets. He gave them the whole clip, and they appeared to wilt. Then he came away from there. Later, he was in the little run at the foot of the hill with three men, all wounded. He never knew how he got there. It just happened. As the Marines crossed the wheat field under terrific fire, then Colonel Catlin noted, Never did men advance more gallantly in the face of certain death. Never did men deserve greater honor for valor. It came, however, at a heavy cost. Hundreds were killed and wounded within just a short time. One experience, that of the war correspondent Floyd Gibbons, was highly indicative of the experience of many Marines that 6th day of June in 1918. I took cover. In order to keep as close to the ground as possible, I had swung my chin to the right so that I was pushing forward with my left cheek flat against the ground and in order to accommodate this position of the head, I had moved my steel helmet over so that it covered part of my face on the right. Then there came a crash. It sounded to me like someone had dropped a glass bottle into a porcelain bathtub. A barrel of whitewash tipped over and seemed that everything in the world turned white. That was a sensation. I did not recognize it because I have often been led to believe and often heard it said that when one receives a blow on the head, everything turns black. I did not know then, as I know now, that a bullet striking the ground immediately under my left cheekbone had ricocheted upward, going completely through the left eye and then crashing out through my forehead, leaving the eyeball and upper eyelid completely halved, the lower eyelid torn away, and a compound fracture of the skull. I began to take stock of my condition. During my year or more along the fronts, I had been through many hospitals, and from my observations in those institutions, I had cultivated a keen distaste for one thing, gas gangrene. 
I had learned from doctors its fatal and horrible results, and I also had learned from them that it was caused by germs which exist in large quantities in any ground that has been under artificial cultivation for a long period. Such was the character of the very field I was lying in, and I came to the realization that the wound in the left side of my face and head was resting flatly on the soil. With my right hand, I drew up my British box respirator, or gas mask, and placed this under my head. Thus, I rested with more confidence. Although the machine gun lead continued to pass in sheets through the tops of the oats, not two or three inches above my head, those guns were not a hundred yards away, and they seemed to have an inexhaustible supply of ammunition. Twenty feet away on my left, a wounded Marine was lying. Occasionally I would open my right eye for a painful look in his direction. He was wounded and apparently unconscious. His pack, the cocky doll, was still strapped between his shoulders. Unconsciously he was doing that which all wounded men do. That is, to assume the position that is most comfortable. He was trying to roll over on his back. But... The pack on his back, and every time he would roll over on this, it would elevate his body into full view of the German gunners. Then a withering hail of lead would sweep the field. It so happened that I was lying immediately in line between those German guns and this unconscious moving target. As the Marine would roll over on top of the pack, his chest would be exposed to the fire. I could see the buttons fly from his tunic and one of the shoulder straps of the backpack's part as the sprays of lead struck him. He would limply roll off the pack over on his side. I found myself wishing that he would lie still, as every moment of this brought streams of bullets closer and closer to my head. Sometimes there were lulls in the firing. During those periods of comparative quiet, I could hear the occasional moan of other wounded in that field. Very few of them cried out, and it seemed to me that those who did were unconscious when they did it. One man in particular had a long, low groan. I could not see him, yet I felt he was lying somewhere close to me. In the quiet intervals, his unconscious expression of pain reminded me of the sound I had once heard made by a calf which had been tied by a short rope to a tree. The animal had strayed round and round the tree until its entanglements in the rope had left it a helpless prisoner. The groan of that unseen, unconscious wounded American who laid near me on the field that evening sounded exactly like the pitiful ball of that calf. To the south end of Bela Wood, Major Sibley and his three six Marines had less open wheat field to cover, yet they too were subjected to a murderous fire. Despite being cut down by the dozens as they advanced, a good number of the three six Marines slammed into the wood and established themselves firmly inside it. They immediately got into lonely and brutal firefights with German machine gun crews who were seemingly everywhere amongst the trees. Grenades burst in the woods, sending screams of pain into the air along with the loosened leaves of trees. Rifles cracked and pistols popped when they were close enough, Marines gave the Germans the bayonet. The American troops pushed, shot, and stabbed their way into the woods and soon held a corner of it. Inside the wood, they pushed until they came to a rocky slope where the Germans had quickly established their main defensive line. 
The machine gun nests there were too much for rifle and grenade. This was gunner's work. The Marines dug in as best they could and kept fighting. To the far right of the Marine sector came the day's real success, the taking of Boresh village. Boresh was a small village of some 60 buildings to the east of Belo Wood's southern half. And to get to it, two companies of the 3-6 Marines followed a roadside ditch that brought them just southwest of the village. There, German machine guns opened up on the advancing Marines and began cutting them to pieces. To the east of the 3-6 Marines, men of the 2-6 Marines advanced on line with them. When the 2-6 Marines came out of a ravine into a wheat field south of Broesch, German machine guns opened up on them as well and pinned them down. After about an hour, a First Lieutenant James Robertson rallied his men and assaulted the village. 96th Company, now commanded by a young lieutenant named Clifton Cates, led the assault under heavy fire. There was very little teamwork, Cates, a future commandant of the United States Marine Corps, said. You usually just got up, rushed in, fired, and there wasn't any covering fire, any maneuvering. You just got up and went forward. Only some 20 Marines made it into the village. The rest were killed or wounded and lay in the fields to the south of Bruges. Those 20 men, however, cleared all of the buildings of Germans and pushed them back to a railroad embankment north of the village, There, the Germans had another defensive position that stopped all of the Marines' attempts to storm it. Lieutenant Cates and his men were later reinforced by more Marines, and they held the village despite several fierce German counterattacks. The Marines weren't having it, though. Every German attack was defeated. The assault and defense of Boresch also saw extraordinary acts of valor as a man rushed under fire into the village to keep the defenders supplied. U.S. Navy Dental Service Officer Lieutenant Whedon Osborne ran out continuously into heavy fire to save wounded men, and he was killed trying to save the Marine 96th Company's commander, a Captain Duncan. Lieutenant Osborne would be posthumously awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, as well as the Medal of Honor. As the 6th of June drew to a close, the situation was confused. Battalion and regimental commanders received reports from men inside the wood that the wood had been taken. Wounded men, staggering back, said no one was in Bella Wood, as many Americans called it at the time. It was a brutal day. Casualties were like nothing the small, tight-knit Marine Corps had ever seen. 1,087 men killed, wounded, or missing. On the evening of the 6th, Colonel Catlin, commander of the 6th Marines, himself was shot through the chest by a German sniper, ending his part in the battle. The Marines would not see losses like this until a generation later. The fight for Balo Wood, however, was just beginning. On the 7th, The 2nd Division switched out the decimated Marine battalions for fresh units that kept the fight alive in the thick woods. These fresh men had no success in advancing through the trees and machine guns. As fresh Marines came into the battle, the Germans brought in troops from understrength divisions to help shore up their line.
tactics began to change almost immediately. As the Marines had advanced in waves and been mowed down for it, men hit the ground and started forming small assault groups. Artillery tactics had to change, too. It was time to call in the guns. On the 9th, all Marines inside Bellow Wood pulled back to the starting positions from three days prior. With no friendlies in the woods, 160 American guns unleashed a firestorm of iron and explosive on the wood for the next 24 hours. The kidney-shaped forest, just a mile square, convulsed as thousands of shells impacted inside it, tearing men and trees limb from limb. The first of the six Marines attacked on the 10th of June behind a creeping barrage. The Germans inside the wood had taken severe losses, and Marine Commander Major John Hughes reported that the day-long bombardment had, quote, blown the Bois de Bello to mincemeat, unquote. Hughes and his Marines came at the wood from the southern end again, and once inside, he quickly reported that he and his men had met their east-west line objective, on line with Hill 169, just outside the wood on the west side. Major Hughes was incorrect, however. What he and his men had in fact reached was the same exact line the three six Marines had reached four days earlier. This affected the Marine Brigade's next move, which was to send in the two five Marines from the west on June 11th. As Hughes and his men were thought to be further up than they actually were, the 2nd Division's gunners had much less target area to pound with their shells. It was a potentially disastrous situation. On the morning of the 11th, under fog, the Leathernecks of 2-5 recreated the assault of June 6th by moving across the open wheat fields again. With the fog, they made it farther across the fields than before, but as they neared the wood, German machine guns opened up on them. Men fell in their dozens. Momentum, however, was with the Marines, and enough men of the 2-5 made it into the wood and slammed into the German 461st Infantry Regiment. The battle for the wood now became vicious, as neither side wanted to give any ground. The Germans in Belo Wood began to be squeezed from three directions, from the west, the south, and even the east, as Marines in Borges village poured fire into the wood from their positions. Over the next days, elements of several German divisions, all depleted by the recent offensives, would be thrown into the wood and its environs. Marine Private F.E. Steck of the 6th Marines reported that, quote, We went into hot fighting on June 11th at 2 a.m. A few hours before, I had been on a detail that was bringing up hot coffee from the rear. Hand grenades were distributed, and then Captain L.W. Williams lined us up in combat formation. Soon we were going single file through the woods and charging across the open area to where the Germans were secluded in their holes. My duties were to load a chauchat, or French automatic rifle. You could run about nine steps, and then another clip would have to be inserted. Bullets slipped my canteen, hit my scabbard, and two or three went through my trousers without touching me. We had advanced in triangle formation about half a mile, I was in the front of the V when three machine gun bullets got me. One went into the neck, another into my left shoulder, and the third in my arm. 
I, I tried. I, I tried to keep on in assisting the operation of the automatic, but the blood came up in my throat. I forced my way back and hid in a shell hole in the woods until a little marine found me. This fellow dragged me 500 yards on his shoulder to a first aid dugout. There, a shelter half was used as a stretcher and I was taken back to a large dressing station. By the 11th, Brigade Commander Brigadier General Harbord was calling for reinforcements, citing the exhaustion of his troops. German counterattacks on Velo Wood and Bresch Village increased over the next few days, with generally little success except for the 14th of June, when a surprise German gas attack caught the Americans unaware. 800 men became casualties in a short time. It was a devastating loss to the U.S. 2nd Division. Despite the physical exhaustion of the men, there seemed to be no shortage of bravery under the worst conditions. U.S. Navy Lieutenant Orlando Petty went on working as a surgeon in his dressing station in Lucy le Bocage, even as it came under terrific shell fire. At one point, a gas shell landed too close, and the shrapnel tore Lieutenant Petty's mask. Petty, focused on the work of saving bleeding and broken men, took off his mask and continued operating. A similar story is that of Gunnery Sergeant Fred Stockham. Gunny Stockham was directing the evacuation of gas casualties from that surprise German attack when a near miss ripped open a wounded Marine's mask. Stockham gave up his own mask for the man and continued getting men out of the target area until he collapsed from the poison gas. He died a few days later. Both Lieutenant Petty and Gunnery Sergeant Stockham would be recipients of the Medal of Honor. By the 15th of June, the 2nd Division had suffered over 4,000 combat casualties since the beginning of the month. Losses were at the rate of at least 100 a day, and that was without attacks. The men of the division were worn out. Three days later, the Marines were relieved by men of the U.S. Army 7th Infantry Regiment, 3rd U.S. Division. The Army now took over the fight for Bela Wood. New German units came into the woods as well. The Germans were not going to give up the wood. When the commander of the German 87th Division requested permission to pull out of the wood and establish better positions to the north, he was denied in order to continue attacking the Americans. The Germans were fully invested in the grueling fight, and it wasn't just over this patch of broken and burning tree stumps. In the U.S. Army's Center of Military History's latest release, titled Into the Fight, Arthur Mark E. Grotelution notes that German General Gustav Boom stated during the struggle, quote, Should the Americans on our front gain the upper hand only temporarily, this may have the most unfavorable influence on the morale of the Entente and on the continuation of the war. In the fighting that faces us, it is therefore not a matter of the possession or non-possession of a village or wood of indifferent value in itself, but the question of whether the English-American publicity will succeed in representing the American army as one equal to the German army or as actually superior troops, end quote. It wasn't about this pointless patch of woods. 
It was about morale. Who would have it and who would lose it? The army that had it would have the willpower to stick through the horror and see the war won. The other side would not. The soldiers of the 7th Infantry Regiment now attacked the wood. Half trained and still raw, the men of the 1st Battalion under Lieutenant Colonel John Adams launched three multi-company attacks on German positions on the 18th, the 19th, and the 20th of June. All three attacks were launched without any artillery support. Predictably, the German machine gun crews mowed down the doughboys with ease. The American troops were left bloodied, depleted, and exhausted. Brigadier General Harvard was incensed that a, quote, little machine gun nest was beating on an entire American battalion like this, and he sent Lieutenant Colonel Adams a note bashing him and his men for letting this happen. Adams replied that his troops were near the breaking point after these fruitless attacks and that he needed real artillery support in order to take out the Germans. Grudgingly, Harbord listened. At midnight on the 21st of June, now over two weeks since the first assault on Balo Wood, some of the 2nd Division's guns began pounding the enemy inside the trees. It still wasn't enough. When the Doughboys of 1st Battalion, 7th Infantry left their positions, they were hit with another wall of heavy machine gun fire. Now fixed in place, the Germans unleashed a heavy artillery counter barrage on the Americans inside the wood. Within hours, the surviving Doughboys crawled back to their starting positions, having made no territorial gains whatsoever. By the end of the day, the Marines of 3rd Battalion, 5th Regiment relieved them. So the Marines were back in. Under Harbord's orders, they launched more attacks without artillery support over the next two days. The result was more of the same. The Germans easily mowed down the Marines. Balo Wood was now chock full of American dead, with dead Germans liberally sprinkled among them as well. The 3-5 Marines reported that infantry alone could not overwhelm the enemy. American leadership now took a step back reassessed, and looked back to the plan that had given them some success two weeks prior. On June 24th, American artillery pounded the Bois de Belleau. On the 25th, starting at 0300, the guns focused their wrath on the northern and enemy-held half of Belleau Wood. For the next 13 hours, the bombardment plastered the wood's northern half from end to end and back again. At 1600, the gunners went all out for an hour, firing their guns' maximum fire rate. It must have been utterly exhausting for those men to reload, relay, and then fire their guns, shell after shell after shell. At 1700 on the 25th, the guns switched to a rolling barrage, and the now veteran Marines went in right behind the falling shells. The artillery had done its job, and well. The onrushing Marines still faced Germans with plenty of fight left in them, but there was none of the resistance they'd faced in the last three weeks. In fact, the Germans began to give way rapidly inside the wood. 300 of them surrendered, many of them gladly ending the war for themselves. In the Marine attack, an entire German battalion was wiped out, 
with 66 men left to report for duty the next day. Marines reached the northern end of the blasted wood. By the next morning, June 26, 1918, the Marines had cleaned out Balo Wood of any remaining enemy. It was at this time that Major Morris Shearer reported to General Harbord, Wood's now entirely U.S. Marine Corps. Bellow Wood had been taken. It had not been easy. 5,200 American men had been killed, wounded, captured, or were missing. And the 2nd Division as a whole had taken 8,000 casualties since entering the front line. The 4th Marine Brigade saw its numbers cut in half as a result of the battle. The Warrior Division was relieved of the sector by the 26th Yankee Division. Private Connell Albertine was a member of the Yankee Division, and he later recounted, quote, We found only a handful of Marines holding these woods. The rest had been killed or wounded. They told me they had no time to string barbed wire and that the Bosch were approximately 500 yards away. What sights we saw. This part of the woods was literally covered with dead Bosch and Marines. The stench from these bodies was sickening, and again, many of us vomited. There was no protection here at all. The Marines had used the drainage gullies alongside the cow pass for foxhole protection. They had gathered pieces of trees torn apart by shell fire and laid them over these gullies. Safe from shrapnel, but no good for direct hits. There was no time to bury the dead because the boss shelled the woods continually, as we discovered when making the relief. The expressions on the faces of some of these dead was frightening. German and American equipment was strewn all over the woods. The Marines who were getting ready to go to the rear also told us that a lot of their buddies had been wounded or killed by tree splinters, so we must stay under the roofs of these quickly made foxholes as much as possible. End quote. The Americans of the 2nd Division had learned a lot in a rather short but expensive time expensive in terms of blood. The lessons learned were studied and quickly put to use. On the 1st of July, after weeks of planning and superb intelligence work that discovered the, quote, location, design, and strength of every building, cellar, enemy strongpoint, machine gun nest, trench mortar placement, sentry post, supply route, and billeting location, end quote, in the village of Vaux, to the southeast of Boresh and Belo Wood, the 2nd Division launched an artillery preparation of the target village. And I have to directly quote Mr. Grotolution's writing from his booklet, Into the Fight, because the paragraph on the preliminary bombardment is indicative of the planning put into the operation. Quote, Under the leadership of the division's new artillery brigade commander, Brigadier General Albert J. Bowley. They then developed a fire support plan that made a maximum use of artillery before, during, and after the infantry attack to ensure its success. Bowley choreographed the fire of 66 75mm guns, 36 155mm howitzers, and a number of trench mortars in a 12-hour preliminary bombardment of the village area that was less than a couple kilometers wide and a couple kilometers deep. During the final three hours of the preparation, some dedicated guns were to fire six 
thousand rounds of mustard gas north of the village to disrupt any German effort to reinforce the defensive garrison and to maximize casualties among any fleeing defenders. In the last hour of the preparation, the rate of fire of all guns would increase to a maximum rate. Then three minutes prior to step off, half the light guns were to initiate a box barrage around the village, while the other half would place a standing barrage immediately in front of the American jump-off positions. At each hour, the standing barrage would then shift to a rolling barrage to escort the infantry all the way through the village and then halt to become a standing barrage just past the infantry's final objective. The differences between the fire support plans for Vaux and for the initial attack at Belo Wood could not have been more striking. End quote. The American attack came at 1800 that day with the doughboys of the 3rd of the 23rd Infantry and 2-9 Infantry, Manchus, running in behind the creeping wall of fire. The Germans inside, those that survived, were quickly overrun. In short order, the ruins of the village were captured at a cost of 300 U.S. casualties. German casualties numbered around 1,000, with half that number as prisoners. It was a thoroughly planned, well-executed mission, and it showed that the Americans could learn quickly and adapt. The battles for Belo Wood, Borges, and Vaux barely registered to the Germans as far as military objectives went. These places hardly differed from High Wood, Fleury, Saïs-Saïsel, and thousands of other forgotten and deadly corners of the Western Front. What did alarm them was how the Americans fought. The following is from a German intelligence report discussing the impression made by the U.S. 2nd Division prisoners taken during the battles for Belo Wood and Borèche. In it, a Leutnant von Berg wrote in June of 1918, quote, The 2nd American Division may be classed as a very good division, perhaps even as assault troops. Parentheses here. To be classified as assault troops in the German army was an honor of the highest degree. End parentheses. The various attacks of both regiments on Belo Wood were carried out with dash and recklessness. The moral effect of our firearms did not materially check the advances of the enemy. The nerves of the Americans are still unshaken. The individual soldiers are very good. They are healthy, vigorous, and physically well-developed men, ages ranging from 18 to 28, who at present lack only necessary training to make them redoubtable opponents. The troops are fresh and full of straightforward confidence. A remark of one of the prisoners is indicative of their spirit. We kill or get killed. The prisoners in general make an alert and pleasing impression. Regarding military matters, however, they do not show the slightest interest. They still regard the war from the point of view of the big brother who comes to help his hard-pressed brethren and is therefore welcomed everywhere. A certain moral background is not lacking. The majority of the prisoners simply took as a matter of course that they have come to Europe to defend their country. Only a few of the troops are of pure American origin. 
The majority is of German, Dutch, and Italian parentage, but these semi-Americans, almost all of whom were born in America and never have been in Europe before, fully feel themselves to be true-born sons of their country. End quote. They were full American citizens. Many were immigrants themselves, not even yet citizens, and yet they turned around and went to fight for their country. The men of the American Expeditionary Force believed in their mission at a critical time when the men of the German Armed Forces were beginning to no longer believe in theirs. Over the coming months, the German Army would again and again be shown what these Americans were made of. And on September 26th, 1918, the Americans would rise to their full height and take part in the 100 days, the relentless Entente drive to push the Germans back everywhere in France and Belgium. And so that means that now I truly go dark for the next few weeks as I research the Meuse-Argonne Offensive. Man, there is a lot to tell about those 47 days there as well. These episodes don't write themselves. So thank you to everyone who has recently submitted a review on iTunes or reached out through the Facebook and the Twitter. Thank you to everyone who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon. And if you're interested in early access to episodes, as well as transcripts with full bibliographies, please head on over to patreon.com slash battles of the first world war podcast questions comments concerns book or french restaurant suggestions the trip to france is right around the corner please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com or talk to me on the twitter at at ww1 podcast you can also go through the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.